Hello, my name is Jared Leatherman, and our scripture today is from 2 Chronicles 36, chapter, or, chapter 36, verses 15 through 21. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, uh, what a happy ending. Happy ending to the story. I was thinking about this. If, if this were made into a movie, uh, it would be one of those Oscar contenders that the critics love, but nobody goes to see, right? Because this isn't the type of ending to a story that we normally look for. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks as we've been exploring the life of King Josiah, the last great king of Judah, uh, you know that his story, like it's been on this upward trajectory until last week, and now this week, we're spending time watching as the nation he left behind after he died uh, spirals into ruin. And as we read this passage, and as that Jared read that to us, I, I was down there listening, thinking, this is just a hopeless story. It seems to be a story that's empty of any belief that God could do something in the future. Where's the hope? That's one of the questions we're going to consider as we walk through this. Last week, I shared with, uh, with you some, some of the struggles in our own lives, personally, our story of infertility and, and some of that, and how we've, we've struggled through it, struggled with our faith, and uh, you know, doubted God's goodness in what he was allowing uh, to happen to us. And when we, when we were really in the midst of the multiple miscarriages and, and really feeling the heartache uh, acutely, many people came alongside of us and, and tried to give us hope, which is what we needed. Well, we, mostly we needed people to just come alongside us and suffer with us, but there's something, it seems difficult for us to just kind of be there and not, not really say anything. So people tried to give us they tried to give us hope or something to hope in. Um, if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone say, just try adopting. I have a friend who adopted a baby and then got pregnant again right away afterwards. Like, I, I would have $10, maybe $15. We heard that one over and over again. You know, people told us to feel blessed. We have so many little angels waiting for us in heaven. And other things. They've, we heard other things that were even more offensive and misguided. And while... We, while we were in the midst of it and hearing some of those things, it, 
on the one hand, you know, it, it hurt and it made us angry and all that. But on the other hand, I know what people are trying to do. They're trying to help us kind of take a step back and see our suffering in context of some bigger story that would help us make sense of it that would help us find meaning in what we were going through. They're, they were trying to help us step back, put ourselves into a bigger story, into a, a bigger narrative where we could find meaning in suffering. I mean, ultimately, though, the stories they told us were mostly a false hope because they were based in a false story or a false belief about reality. But the hope, the thing about hope is true no matter what the story was they were telling us. In order for us to find hope in suffering, in whatever situation we're in, our hope needs a bigger story. Our hope needs context. It needs a larger narrative in order to make sense of what's happening to us. In his meditation on hope, uh, the Columbia professor Andrew Del Banco argues that every culture tells stories about itself in order to give its citizens hope. Uh, Del Banco says, we have to imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we're to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in, a, in an absurd world. He doesn't strike me as a very hopeful guy, but uh, he goes on to say that we tell ourselves stories uh, because it's the way that we organize the chaotic sensations amid which we pass our days, our experiences of pain and desire, pleasure and fear. We need to tell ourselves a story, a, a grand narrative that gives our lives direction and gives meaning to what we're going through, that gives us hope. Because hope is absolutely necessary if we're going to face suffering with any sort of moral courage. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor argues that, that the world we live in right now, modern secularism, the modern worldview, is the only one where people have to find hope completely within this life. See, all the previous religions and worldviews saw this life as just part of something bigger. This life isn't the whole story. There's more to it than just our experiences now. So they could find meaning in suffering that transcended just this life. Suffering pointed towards something bigger than this life, something that mattered beyond this world, that mattered more than this world. But today we live sort of in this soup of needing to find meaning for suffering totally within this world. Taylor says that our secular age is marked by a widespread inability to give any human meaning to suffering and death, other than as dangers and enemies to be avoided and combated. So our world tends to believe that suffering and tragedy can never be more than just an intrusion into life, an unwanted conqueror or invader, an invader that's capable of destroying our very meaning for living. But as a, as a person of faith, I have to believe that suffering means more than just something I have to get through or something I have to grit my teeth and just bear. There must be some larger purpose to it. And that's kind of the question that's underneath this last uh, time that we're going to Second Chronicles in chapter 36 to look at the life of King Josiah. We've come to the end of this short series that we've called Faith for Pagans as we've explored the life and the faith of the last good king of Judah, King Josiah. Uh, 
And so far as we've explored his life, we've learned that for faith to survive in a pagan and pluralistic context, it has to be a robust faith, a faith that seeks God continuously. And for our faith to grow, we need to be willing to be confronted with who God is as he's revealed himself, not the God that we've made up in our heads. We need to be confronted with who God really is and what he expects of us so that we can turn to him and find the grace that he has for us in our covenant relationship with him. And that relationship needs to be reinforced on our part over and over again, telling ourselves continuously the story of who God is, what he's done for us. So we can find who we are in the midst of that story. And we've seen, as we looked at Josiah's death last week, uh, that true faith doesn't protect us from tragedy and suffering. But it does give us the resources to come through suffering with our faith intact. uh, To lament, individually and in community. Laments, these, these expressions of anger and frustration and grief and doubt that we express in a healthy relationship with God, but they always have underneath them this backbone of hope, a a deep and unshakable conviction that at some point God is going to make everything right. Uh, Louis Marcos is a professor in English at Houston Baptist University, and I love his definition for hope, what he says hope is. He defines it like this. He says, hope is imminent expectation that cannot be defeated by present pain or darkness. Now, he doesn't say it can't be weakened or it can't be wounded, but it can't be defeated. To live in hope is to know for a certainty, to know with one's whole being that good will come out of evil, that there will be a happy ending, and not some forced arbitrary, tagged-on, happy ending, but one that is both natural and necessary, that rises up out of the evil itself. The kind of ending that you never could have guessed, but that strikes you when it comes as exactly the right kind of ending. He he says, hope is this, this gut feeling that no matter what I see right now, I know God's doing something. And that's the hope that we're going to try to focus on this morning. As we read the story of the nation of Judah after Josiah's death, we're going to try to answer this question, what gives us hope in the face of suffering, in the face of tragedy or disaster? Are there any hints of hope within the story of Judah that we can pull out and see what God's trying to do? Where do we find our our hope if we're going to face suffering well? So as we read through this chapter, or as I kind of talk through it and we skim through it pretty quickly, there's one main idea we're going to explore over and over again, uh, which is pretty simply this. Uh, Hope comes from believing there's more to the story than just what I can see. Hope comes from believing there's more to the story, there's more to what's going on than just what I can see right in front of me. So as we explore Josiah's story... We're going to look at the details of what happens, but we're also going to try to zoom out. We're going to, we're going to put his story in context of the bigger biblical storyline, because it's only by zooming out, by taking a broader look at it, by putting suffering in context, that we can find hope to sustain us through it. 
So we're in 2 Chronicles 36 this morning, which is on page 456 of the Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you if you want to follow along. Uh, chapter 36 starts right after Josiah's tragic death. You remember we talked about last week. And after his death, the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. So remember Josiah's tragic death, unexpected, unlooked for, not anticipated. Uh, the people are in turmoil and they need a king. They need a ruler, especially since Josiah died in battle against Egypt, their immediate neighbor to the south. So they basically take Jehoahaz, make him king in his father's place. The, the Hebrew there kind of has a flavor to it of this was like a popular uprising. They just appointed him. Didn't go through any of the, the, the normal um, rites of succession, just we need a guy, here's Jehoahaz. He wasn't the oldest son, he was actually the third, and fairly young, he was 23 when he became king. But uh, it seems that historians largely consider his reign to be illegitimate, probably because he didn't last very long, three months max. You remember how Pharaoh Necho was, was marching up north through Judah to go protect Assyria from Babylonian invaders, and Josiah rode out to try to slow him down. Well, when Necho heard that Josiah had died in this battle, remember he was disguised, so he didn't know right away. When he found out the king of Judah was dead, uh, Necho continued on north slowly with most of his army, but sent a smaller division back down to Jerusalem to take over, depose the new king, and put up a king of his choosing and to elect or to a, a levy a tax from the people. So in all, Jehoahaz ruled only three months before Necho's forces took over Jerusalem and had him dethroned and exiled to Egypt where he eventually died. Not a really hopeful end to the first reign of the first king after Josiah. Now we know from the writings of Jeremiah, who was a prophet who lived and worked during this time, that Jehoahaz was not necessarily a very good guy. Jeremiah writes about him saying, Woe to you who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. You have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, for practicing oppression and violence. So after he's taken away, Jeremiah predicts, he shall return here no more, but in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die, and he shall never see this land again. Not a king who gives us hope. Now, once Necho's forces had carted off Jehoahaz, they put his older brother, Josiah's second son, in charge. His name was Jehoiakim. He was only a couple years older, 25 years old, uh, but he reigned a little bit longer. He managed to stay on the throne for 11 years. Uh, but the writer of Chronicles comes right out and tells us that what he did, what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. But even during this time, of the three months of one bad king and then the 11 years of another bad king, uh, hope wasn't lost. Jeremiah tells us that at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, Jehoiakim, the second king after Josiah, at the beginning of his reign, uh, God sent him this prophecy of de the destruction of Jerusalem if his people didn't repent. And it's, it sounds like a dire prophecy, you know, repent or you will all die, but it was actually one with hope underneath it. Jeremiah records God saying, telling him, go say these things because it may be, 
It may be they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. God's holding out hope, saying there's still a chance for you to repent. But they don't. Instead, when Jeremiah shows up and says this, they threaten him with death. The Jehoiakim's 11 years on the throne were not uneventful. We know from the record in Kings and some of the records in the prophets. Uh, three or four years into Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar shows up. Now that name might sound familiar to you. He's kind of a major player in the, in the region at this time and a huge part of the exile of Judah that we're going to read about as it comes. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar was the king of this upstart nation of Babylon that we talked about a little last week. They had managed to severely weaken Assyria, who used to be the major player, and they'd managed to decimate Egypt as well. So in the power vacuum left behind by the absence of these two nations, Nebuchadnezzar was able to just kind of sweep in and subjugate the entire ancient Near East uh, to his own rule. So he shows up in Jerusalem around 605 BC or so and quickly forced his way in and took over plundered the treasures of the capital and the temple, and bound King Jehoiakim to take him off into exile. Though apparently Jehoiakim pledged allegiance or something to him because Nebuchadnezzar let him stay on the throne for another few years. But when Nebuchadnezzar left, he took with him a large amount of the glory and the value of Judah and forced into exile a number of the elites. This is where Daniel was first forced into Babylon. So a second king, a second conquering, a second king coming in and saying, no, no, this isn't the way we're going to run things. I'm going to control you. And Jehoiakim didn't particularly like this. So a couple of years after this, while Nebuchadnezzar was distracted with consolidating his power somewhere else, Jehoiakim says, let's make an alliance with the nations around him to throw off Babylonian rule. He even goes so far as to go down to Egypt and say, hey guys, I know like just 10 years ago you were subjugating us, but I need your help. Let's, let's be friends now. It doesn't work well for him. He tries to throw off Babylonian rule, and while Nebuchadnezzar couldn't come himself right then, he basically uh, starts hiring the nations around them as mercenaries to come in and harass Jehoiakim over and over again until eventually he's killed in battle. Not a really hopeful ending to the second king after Josiah. But it's fitting for Jehoiakim, he was also not a good guy. Uh, some historians characterize him as Judah's most wicked king. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant. He cared nothing for the worship of God. He levied exorbitant taxes, forced his own people into slavery, sponsored idolatry, and had no concern for the widespread social injustice during his reign. When he died, Jeremiah records, nobody's going to sing a lament for this guy. Nobody's going to say, my Lord, his majesty. Jeremiah says, with the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped outside the gates of Jerusalem. Not a hope-filled ending. Well, when Jehoiakim died, his son, Jehoiachin, became king. Those names make me giggle too, so you're good. 
And what we could hope that this guy would maybe bring some good news, none comes. He's barely a footnote in history. He lasts three months and 10 days before Nebuchadnezzar, again, on his way to punish Jehoiakim when Jehoiakim is killed, shows up in the spring of that year and says, three months, you're out of here. Conquers Jerusalem again for the second time, or third time if you count Egypt, uh, conquers Jerusalem again, strips even more of the treasure from the temple and from, from the palace, and uh, kills or takes Jehoiachin off into exile, uh, takes him into exile in Babylon, and sets up a new king. Three months, ten days, but still enough time for the writer of Chronicles to be able to evaluate, Jehoiachin did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jeremiah had actually recorded a prophecy about this guy, uh, recording God saying, As I live, though Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, the, the symbol of his authority, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid. God says, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and where you shall die. Which is exactly what happened. The queen mother was taken too. The Lord says, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Man, where's the hope? Because none of his offspring do. After Jehoiachin is dethroned, Nebuchadnezzar sets up Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, as the king. And though Zedekiah reigned for, again, another 11 years, he was a king of weak character, ruled by his own officials and unwilling or unable to make his own decisions. So under his rule, lawlessness and evil increased. Uh, verse 14 tells us, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Now Zedekiah tried to bring the captive people back together. Shortly after he became king, he sent ambassadors to Babylon to try to get Nebuchadnezzar to release all the captives he had there. But when he was unsuccessful, he again made alliance with the nations around him to try to throw them off, which didn't work. Nebuchadnezzar, hearing of this, shows up in Jerusalem again, his third time, and laid siege. Jerusalem managed to hold for about 18 months, but the famine got so bad uh, inside the city walls that unspeakable, just inhuman horrors took place in the name of survival. Mothers started bartering their newborn children for bread. And when they couldn't get bread, they boiled the children themselves. And then when Nebuchadnezzar's forces managed to breach the wall of the lower city, Zedekiah and most of the soldiers snuck out under cover of darkness and left the people behind to fend for themselves. But of course, since the city was surrounded, Zedekiah didn't get very far before they saw he was sneaking off and the Babylonian forces pursued him all the way to Jericho where they finally caught up with him, which is ironic. You think of God's people coming into the promised land in Judah, or in, in Jericho, excuse me, and then being basically chased right back out the way they came in. Once Nebuchadnezzar's forces captured Zedekiah and his, his sons, 
the forces brought him to Nebuchadnezzar for judgment to face justice. And so Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's sons killed right in front of his eyes, and then he gouged out his eyes. So that's the last thing he would ever see and took him into Babylon to be exiled as a prisoner until he died. Jerusalem, meanwhile, was pillaged and burned to the ground, and its walls knocked over. And that's the end of the nation of Judah. So be warm and be filled and do God's will, right? <laughs> it's, not a very, it's not a very happy ending. It, it strikes us as rather hopeless. And it is hopeless, or at least it feels hopeless, as long as we're in the weeds, as long as we're in the details just right here with only what we can see happening at this moment. See, the, writers of Chron- the writer of Chronicles in verses 15 and 16, he gives us a theological assessment of where the people are when this happens. Verses 15 and 16 say, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. There was hope if people could have seen it. There was hope if people had listened to the prophets and the messengers that God sent. Hope is there when we're tempted to think there was no hope at all. Hope was there for those who will listen. I've referred to Jeremiah a couple of times already because he, he lived and worked during the end of the reign of Josiah and all four of these kings. Uh, he was actually even given the opportunity to go into exile with the people, but he elected instead to stay behind with the roughly 20,000 or so of the poorest of the poor who were left behind, which didn't work out too well for him. There was a group of rebels that assassinated the governor and then kidnapped Jeremiah and took him into Egypt, which wasn't good. But Jeremiah, all throughout the book that's named after him, he he recorded the bigger story of what was happening. He spent time in lament. He spent time mourning what was going on 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 those days, in those moments. But he also put it in a bigger context. He put it in in the bigger narrative of of what God is trying to do. Jeremiah was one of those messengers that God sent persistently to them because God had compassion on them. And if you read through the whole book of Jeremiah, his hope in God comes through clearly over and over again. I'm going to read from just chapter 30. And this is is kind of a longer reading. So if you want to turn there and follow along, you're welcome to. But since this is poetry, I'd recommend instead just close your eyes and listen. Or if closing your eyes feels weird, just like look over my shoulder or something. And just listen to the words from Jeremiah 30. Thus says the Lord the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. 
for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you, of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There's none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. So why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. But then, as we read this passage, this is where it turns. This is where God is so, so eager to bless, so eager to uphold his covenant commitment to his people that even though he says your pain is incurable, your guilt is great, all I can do is punish. He says, because of who I am, all I can do is bless. Verse 16, therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast. It's Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. See, there's hope in the midst of this suffering. There's hope in the midst of this exile for those who have the ears to hear the bigger story. For those who can hear Jeremiah saying, look, what you're going through right now is not the sum total of what God is trying to do in your life. What you're experiencing in this moment, this is not all there is. This is not the end of the story. See, hope comes from believing there is more to the story than what I can see right now. Hope comes from believing, from seeing that this story does not end with the suffering I'm experiencing at the moment. Hope comes from seeing we're part of a bigger story and that our suffering is just one small part of it. If we're going to know with our whole being that good will come out of suffering, that there will be a happy ending, to know that there is a satisfying, a, a right ending means we have to know the whole story. We have to know the bigger story, the broader context of what God is trying to accomplish in our lives through the things we're facing and the suffering we're going through. We have to know the story of what God is doing. And thankfully, that bigger story, that bigger context, it shows up in hints 
in our text here as well, at the very end of 2 Chronicles. 2 Kings does the same thing, but in this particular accounting of the history, at the very end, you know, from the end of what we read earlier, verse 21, where they're going into the exile, to the beginning of verse 22 is a 50-year jump. The narrator suddenly jumps 50 years ahead to the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus was a couple of kings after Babylon, yet another nation that came in and deposed Babylon and took over in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the promise to give you a land and a hope and a future. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. See, there is hope. There is hope in the midst of suffering. There is hope in the midst of exile. Hope is not lost. God is still working his purposes. And in their story, Cyrus's declaration begins the process of bringing the people of Judah back from exile, taking the evil that has happened to them and making out of it something new, the, the right kind of ending. So as we, as we wrap up this sermon and this sermon series as a whole, and we read the story of a faithful man, a faithful King Josiah, whose story ends in tragedy, heartache, and exile, what application do we find for ourselves? How do we read a story like this and translate it into things that, that help us make sense of our own lives? Josiah's story... His own particular story does not necessarily give us hope, but seeing his story in context of what God is doing for the whole nation does. You know, I've noticed that no matter what you believe or who you are, when we go through difficulty or tragedy or suffering, we always try to find some sort of meaning in it some sort of purpose behind the suffering that helps us deal with it, that helps us uh, understand why it's happening. We try to place our suffering in, into a broader context, some bigger picture, some bigger story that gives it that purpose, gives it that meaning. I mean, it's just human nature. We can't live practically as if uh, we're nothing more than just collections of atoms bumping into one another. We have to see ourselves as part of something bigger. So if we can't find meaning to our suffering, we're going to go ahead and create it for ourselves. I would use as sort of the paradigmatic example uh, the Cubs saying, hey, wait till next year, except next year was last year, and so I don't know what this year holds. But this, this sense that, you know what, we might have been suffering defeat this year, but next year, next year's the year. Now, that may just have been a pipe dream for 100 years for Cubs fans, but for us, who know the end of the story that God is telling, it's a hope that is more sure and more certain than any other hope we can find anywhere else. See, when we encounter suffering, to give it meaning, we're either going to make up a story 
or we're going to look outside ourselves at another story, a bigger one that already exists. Either way, hope comes from believing there's more to the story than just what I can see. But it's only true hope if it's based in a true story. One theologian writes, simply put, hope is not a virtue because it makes us feel better. We're not supposed to just hope in hope. Uh, hope may make people feel better, but it does it because it's true. The Christian hope may make people feel better, but that's because it's a true hope. If what Christians hope for is actually not true, then hope is just pathetic self-deception. See, I don't know where you are individually. Maybe you're facing some sort of hopeless situation or a place where you feel like there is no hope. You can't see what God is doing. You don't know how could God possibly bring any good out of this thing he's allowing to happen to me. And it's these questions that keep us, keep us awake at night. How, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? I know right now for some of us, circumstances are just overwhelming. And it seems impossible to see hope. Hope comes from believing there's more to the story than just what I can see. And hope isn't necessarily a feeling first. Sometimes it's a choice first and a feeling later. Because to find hope in suffering, we have to, to develop the habit of believing that there's more to the story than just what's apparent. We, we have to zoom out. We have to see our immediate situation, whatever we're going through, in context of what God is trying to do in us. And he's told us, he's promised to us in places like Philippians 1, that the good work he began in us, he will bring it to completion. He's promised in Romans 8 that everything that happens, he's going to work out for good. Everything good, everything bad, he's going to work it for our good. And you know, we tend to think that our good means material comfort or ease or at least a lack of suffering, but that's not what he's saying. Our greatest good, our ultimate good is a relationship with God. Communion with him to the extent that we can experience it in this life. So when God says, I'm going to work everything for good, he's saying everything that happens to you is so that you can know me more. Everything that happens to us is so we can know him more. And that's the bigger context. That's the bigger story we need in order to look at our own experiences, especially our experiences of suffering, and, and be able to see, God, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm helping you to know me more. I'm helping you to know me more. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying it's without cost or that you're just going to be able to make a decision on a Sunday morning and suddenly it'll all take care of itself and it'll be easy after this. You know, to say, I will hope in God, even in tragedy, is about as easy as saying, I will climb Mount Everest. It's saying, I am setting my mind and my heart and my affections on this destination that's going to require planning and, and preparation and training and work and stick to and prayer to get there. Hope will not come easily, but it will grow as often as we remind ourselves of the bigger story and who we are in light of it. And that hope is not going to make suffering practically any easier. Like C.S. Lewis says, when you're at the dentist, it doesn't matter if you grip the armrest or hold your hands in your lap. The drill drills on. You're still going to feel it. It's still going to hurt. 
But hope does tell us this suffering is not the end of our story. It's not the end of Josiah's story. It's not the end of Judah's story. It's not the end of the story of the people of God. And our suffering is not the end of your story. It's not the end of the story of what God is doing in your life. There is an ending to come, an ending that has been promised to us in which every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things will have passed away. He is making everything new. That's the story that gives us hope. Father, you have given us in your word not just examples of people who have suffered well with hope in what you're doing, but you've also given us your son who suffered well with the hope that what he was doing would buy for us our redemption and give us that faith to know we will never suffer ultimate abandonment. There is always hope, no matter how dark it gets, Lord, you have told us. I'm with you. Joy comes in the morning. Lord, I pray for those of us who right now just can't see that hope. I pray that you'll help us to lament. I pray that you'll help us to lament with each other with this backbone of hope, with this gut feeling that you will do something. I don't know what, and we're not going to give each other easy answers or try to explain away what you're doing, but we're just going to get together and say, God's doing something. I don't know what. It doesn't take away the hurt, Lord, but it does help us to know this isn't the end of the story. Thank you for this pagan king who came to faith in you and teaches us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.